Part nine, part nine in our series. Uh, we introduced this topic several months ago, and we've spent most of our time focusing on the issue of fear. Uh, today, we want to sort of pivot specifically to the issue of worry or uh, anxiety. So, if you were with us last Sunday, you'll remember we wrapped up a list of. Uh, what we called critical components in the process of change uh, when it comes specifically to fear. Uh, There were 10 of them in total, and so these were them. You have to identify your fears and how you've handled them. You need to ask yourself questions to get at those heart issues and realize that fear may be a signal pointing to uh, heart issues. Uh, Number four, you must identify sinful fear for what it is. You must deal biblically with evident guilt through repentance and faith. And then we sort of broke that specific thing out to confession of sin, recalling your identity uh, in Christ and in the gospel, affirming God's forgiveness, asking for grace to change, entrusting yourself to God's character and promises. And ultimately, it's going to require you to deny yourself. So there's a, there's a, it's going to be, not just an act of believing, but that's a part of believing is walking, right? I mean, you're going to have to take steps of, of, of obedience. You're going to have to make some uh, challenging decisions in your life. That's all a part of this process of repentance and faith. Uh, you must also develop a greater fear of God. Uh, study, meditate, and apply key Bible passages that address sinful fear and uh, clarifying uh, what you are trusting God to do in the situation doing the next loving thing. And so just that question of what, what does love look like in this situation and what is the next loving thing I need to do? You know, so we don't, don't get carried away with what you need to do a month from now or next week, but just think about that next step and, uh, and begin to think very practically about that. And then number 10, you must remind yourself of God's ultimate deliverance. Uh, and pretty much all of these will apply to the problem of Worry, And so we will come back to this, but you could take this exact same list and just substitute in anxieties, right? You have to identify your anxieties and how you've handled them and just go down through here. Uh, Not much of this would change. Uh, We're going to add some things to this list um, before we're done. And so, uh, but we don't want to leave those 10 things behind because there are some, some similarities between fear and worry. But there are also, as we mentioned, some differences, and we want to we spend our time today kind of highlighting those, those differences. So let's consider how to overcome worry or sinful concern. Um, so just a pretty simple question, do you think this is a problem? <laughs> do you think worry is a common problem in the lives of Christians? All right? I would say it's every Christian, just about, that I know uh, has struggled at some time or another uh, about this, and yet many Christians who would never commit sexual immorality or get plastered or use profanity worry on a regular basis, right? So, uh, and, and in fact, worry has become, in the words of the late Jerry Bridges, a respectable sin or an acceptable sin in the church. Uh, a sin, as he says, that though it brings dishonor to God is too often overlooked among Christians. So he talks about this. This is just one of the, the chapters in his book. Some of you, I think, have, have, are familiar with Jerry's uh, his book titled Respectable Sins. 
Uh, anxiety is just one of those things that he brings out in that book. It's a great study. comes with a great study guide if you're interested in, in maybe doing that at some point. But Bridges warns that, that we are apt to focus on the obvious ills of society and our attention to those seemingly great sins, he says, somehow convinces us that our small sins are acceptable. But when we worry or when we are frustrated, we conduct ourselves in ways that are, and he uses this particular phrase, unbecoming of the saints, which is sort of a, 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 a little bit of an archaic way, in a way, of, of, of saying that, but that's, it's unbecoming of the saints. And then he makes this statement. He says, one of our problems is that we neither think of ourselves as saints, right, with our new state's concurrent responsibility to live as saints, Then he says, nor do we think of such actions as our gossip or impatience, or we might add our anxiety, as sin. So he says, we have have two problems uh, that have gotten us into this situation when it comes to these kinds of sins. One is that we just don't think of ourselves as saints. We don't think enough about, we could say, our identity in Christ, the fact that we have been sanctified, we have been justified, We belong to the Lord, and so we don't think enough about that. And on the other side, we don't think about our actions such as irritability or frustration or anxiety or worry or those kinds of things as actual sins, and so we just sort of excuse them, right? And we just kind of go through our lives uh, falling into those things repeatedly and yet not really taking them seriously and and aggressively uh, striving to put them to death. Now, what are some of the things that people commonly fret about? Well, some of these things, again, would overlap with the question of what do people fear. Uh, But some of those things I think people worry about, money, success, or work, uh, the future of their children, uh, decision-making. Sometimes it's what other people think about them, and so that sort of falls into that category of kind of in that fear of man uh, sort of uh, um, umbrella. Uh, crime, you know, those types of things, um, you know, things will happen. And this is, this is just a very common experience, I think, for a lot of moms, <laughs> is that they, they, they either watch the news or they get something on their phone or some sort of a feed and they find out that some guy escaped from the penitentiary in Cobb County this morning. And they begin to think about, like, it, like as if that, that is right there at their front door, right? So this, of all the thousands of people, right, and there's this one person that's on the loose, and they immediately begin to fret about their kids, right? And they got to keep their kids safe, and where are their kids at? And are they outside playing? Maybe they need to come in for a while. And so they'll track that, right? I mean, not, not only do they think about it initially, but all throughout the day, they're wanting the update, right? Is that guy still on the loose? And so it's not that, again, we shouldn't be wise and prudent, but these things can become very, um, you know, become really a focus of our of our minds and our thoughts. Uh, so for some people, it's those things. Uh, some some might be fretful about questions that God chooses not to answer. Uh, some people fret about that sin that might be exposed, and again, that kind of overlaps with the issue of fear. And lo- and for lots of people, it's just the insignificant details of daily life. So what do you worry about, right? What do you worry about? Uh, maybe more importantly, what does the Bible say about worry? And the Bible has much to say about worry and about what it is and what it's not and how to handle it. So we want to 
kind of walk through this. Um, I pray this will be just very, very helpful. I, I have found this, dis, this particular discussion that we're going to have today and, and most likely spilling into next week um, is one of the most sort of, um, it, it, it is such a turning point for a lot of, for so many Christians that we, that we are attempting to disciple and to counsel uh, this particular concept. One, I think it just speaks to the fact that this is a common struggle. Um, but two, I think it speaks to the fact that there's just not a lot of clarity about what worry really is and, and, and how, to, uh, how to deal with it. So in the New Testament, there is a Greek verb that means to worry or to be concerned, and it's merimnao. Uh, it's a combination of two words, right? So we're going to cover a lot of passages today, but I'm going to get this, I don't typically... Uh, get into this kind of detail with you about the, the, the uh, Old Testament or New Testament languages. But I think this is helpful because this particular word that's translated, again, in both ways in the New Testament, it, it comes, it's a combination of two words. One is a, a verb, merizo, which means to divide or separate, or you, you could say to distribute or to apportion something. And then this word nous, which is the word translated as, in the New Testament as, as mind. So stressing sort of the thoughts or the understanding. And so this is, this is really pointing to both the action and the result of concern or worry, which is to divide, uh, to, to part, to distract your thoughts, uh, or to uh, distract or divide your attention. And it's usually translated, again, as worry. It can be translated as care. It can be translated as concern. It can be translated as anxieties. Uh, And like fear, it's not always a negative thing. So it's not always a sinful thing. That all depends on the context and how the term is used. This is from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Uh, Just some quotes from this. Just I think gives some good explanation here. It says, The New Testament realizes that human life is swayed by care. The exhortations not to worry presuppose that every man naturally cares for himself and his life, that he is concerned about himself, that he is always intent on something and concerned about something. This is by no means ruled out as illegitimate. Indeed, it is accepted that man is concerned about himself and that he strives after these things. But the why and wherefore of his concern and striving are given a new orientation, and so too is his understanding of himself and his life. Then they say this, what makes a proper concern foolish is anxiety and the illusion to which it gives rise in its blindness, namely that life itself can be secured by the means of life for which there is concern. Goes on, such anxiety is futile for the future which they think they can provide for is not in their hands. The man who is concerned about himself and who tries to find security in the means of life is shown that he must make the lordship of God his first concern, and then anxiety about his life will wither away. So let's talk about, let's kind of round this out. Let's, let's try to describe what worry is, biblically speaking. So to do that, let's look at the opposite of this. So what, is, what worry is not, right? What, what worry is not? Well, first of all, Worry is not diligent care and concern that causes you to attend to life in a responsible way. Uh, look over at uh, 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. 
The second Corinthians 11, this is right on the heels of, of Paul describing various forms of external suffering uh, in Paul's life, such as being in prison. He gives a whole list catalog of things. Uh, being in prison, being shipwrecked uh, multiple occasions, being attacked by false teachers, uh, going without food, uh, going without sleep. And then he says this in verse 28. He says, after giving this list of things, apart from such external things, this is New American Standard, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Okay, now that, that word for concern is, is uh, merimnas. So this is a, a form of that verb, okay? So he, Paul says, I've got these external pressures on me, and then I have this sort of internally, I have the pressure on me of concern for the churches. And then he says this in verse 29, who is weak without me, my being weak? Who is led into sin, which is a word for stumbling? So you could say, who, who is made to stumble without my intense concern? Well, even though it's translated the New American Standard as uh, concern, it's not the same word. In fact, some of you may have the ESV and what is, what is it in there with in verse 29? It says, am I not what? Well, what is it? Indignant, right? It's actually a word for burn, okay, or fire, <laughs> where we get pyro, okay? So um, what Paul's saying is that I have this burden on me of concern for the churches, and when someone is weak, I'm weak, Right? Like, I identify with this, the struggle, right? And when someone is made to stumble, I get upset. All right? I get upset when I see people causing other believers to stumble. Okay? So, this is a very serious thing in Paul's, in, in Paul's mind. So, this is, this, is, this, is, this, is a, this is a big deal. So, the question is do you think, do, do you think Paul cares about the church? Do you think he cares about the church? Do you think he cares about the lives of the people in the church? Okay, how much do you think Paul cares? I mean, I look at this list of external things. The way I think of Paul saying this is, I've had all these external struggles in my life, but that's not anything like the internal struggle. Like, I can deal with the stuff that comes from the outside, but the thing that really burdens me down is, are believers progressing in their faith? And are they being... Uh, are they being tripped up in their conscience? And are people purposefully putting stumbling blocks before them? In fact, you could go over to Galatians chapter 4 in verse 12 and listen to what Paul says in, in, in Galatians 4 about his sort of relationship to that particular church. He says in verse 12, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise nor loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Verse 15, where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They, they eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. He's speaking about those false, false teachers that were undermining the gospel, uh, again, sort of coming in behind Paul and his preaching and, and really distorting the gospel of grace. 
Verse 18, But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you. Verse 19, My children with whom I am again in labor, the ESV says, in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So again, you sort of feel, it's, I mean, I haven't experienced labor, okay? But at least probably half of you in the room can identify with, with that kind of anguish, right? That kind of, 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 of agony. And so Paul's saying, that's, what I, that's how I feel about this issue of Christ being formed in you. I mean, that, I, this is a serious matter. Uh, I am laboring in these things to the point of exhaustion. And so, again... Should Paul have been concerned about the state of the churches in this way? Absolutely, right? Uh, Should we be concerned about the state of the church, right? I mean, should we as believers have that same level of concern about the church? And I would say without a doubt, we should have that. But the question then is, should we be anxious about that? Should we be anxious about the state of the church? Okay, that's, that's, that's the thing, because it's using, this, again, the same term to describe Paul's concern for the church. You could, you could translate that as anxieties, as you could translate that as worry, but there's a reason why the translators choose the word concern or care over anxiety and worry. And that's because when we speak about worry and anxiety, we're usually stressing the negative side of this term, Right? So should we be concerned about the church? Yes. Should we be anxious about that? No. Okay, so turn over to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. This is right after reminding the church that there are many members uh, but one body. And Paul writes, this is beginning in verse 21. He says, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same merimnao, right? This is our term, the same care for one another, the same concern for one another. This is the actual design of God for the church. The reason that God so composes the body the way that he does is so that there will be mutual concern expressed in the body of Christ right? Uh, the church is so put together in such a way that every member of the body of Christ ought to share with Paul in his, when he says, when others are weak, I'm weak, and when others are made to stumble, I'm indignant. We should, we should have that same concern for one another, right? That same uh, sort of ministry of oversight, right? And we've talked about this before. When he, Hebrews uses this term for oversight, which we, we normally associate with the responsibility of elders and pastors in the church. They're the overseers. But the way that Hebrews uses it, the writer of Hebrews uses that same term, but he uses it in the context of the one another ministry in the church. 
to say that there is a responsibility for pastors to, to uh, perform this ministry of oversight over the body, but that doesn't get you off the hook because you should be equally concerned about each other spiritually, right? You should be concerned about spiritual well-being of others. In fact, the, this passage tells us that's, it's by design. <laughs> it's, it's, you look around and say, well, look, you know, it's like, look at all these crazy people, right? I mean, you just look around the room. Look at all these crazy people, right? So, well, why these people, right? I mean, why does that person, he does that thing or she does that thing that, that's so irritating or aggravating or, or this person over here and they have different perspectives than you and all that. Well, that's okay. What binds us together and gives us unity is the, is the, is the gospel, right? It's the truth. And so we, we rally around this, this common faith, right? And we're brought together by Christ and, and, and by the Spirit of God. But the differences that we have, why don't we have those differences? So that we would actually have this mentality in the church that we're concerned for one another, right? Those differences should actually highlight the necessity of, of, of our, uh, in the body, for us to carry out this ministry of care, and concern. He says, verse 26, notice the similarity here between this and what Paul said before. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So again, should we care for one another? Yes. Should we be anxious about that? No. Uh, Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. At this point, Paul is imprisoned. Uh, He's he has this concern for the church at Philippi. He's concerned about their progress and their joy in the faith. He mentions that in chapter 1. He wants to know how they're doing. So he plans, he tells us in, in chapter 2, he tells the church that he, he plans to send Timothy to them and, and to sort of get a report. And notice what he writes starting in verse 19. This is Philippians two nineteen. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned, there's our word, for your welfare. For they, these others, all seek after their own interest, not those of Christ Jesus. So was that a good thing? Was that a good thing for Timothy to be destroyed? Just think about it as distracted in his thoughts, distracted in his mind. Is that a good thing that Timothy was distracted in his mind about the welfare of the Philippian Christians? Is that a good thing? I mean, is Paul presenting this as a negative? I mean, he's saying, I'm sending this particular guy to you because nobody has more concern for you than this guy. All these others, they're concerned about themselves, but not Timothy. Timothy actually shares the care and the concern of Christ for his church. But should Timothy have been anxious about that? No. Okay, one more. 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. This is verse 32. And again, this is in the sort of the context of singleness and marriage and those who've not been married, those who have been divorced. It's, it's got all these different things going on, but... Just kind of pick it up here in verse 32. I want you to be, and this is amerimnas, which is the no concern. So it's translated as, I want you to be free from concern, 
one who is married, he says, or one who is unmarried is concerned, because this is all throughout this passage, that's the uh, merimnao. So one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. There's meritso. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Verse 35, this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion. This is a different term, but it's just the concept of just steadfast service. So just he wants to secure undistracted devotion, wants to secure steadfast service to the Lord. Now, what is Paul saying? Is Paul saying that for a married person, it is sinful for their interests to be divided and for them to be distracted by their thoughts about their spouse and their efforts to please their husband or wife? It's not what he's saying. Right? He's not saying that. In fact, he says here, seeking to please one another in marriage is a basic and expected principle of a good marriage. But isn't it equally true that a single person is free from concern about the earthly needs of a spouse and therefore potentially better able to set himself or herself apart exclusively, exclusively for the Lord's work? Yes. So Paul isn't saying that marriage prevents great devotion to the Lord. But it does bring more potential matters to interfere with that. On the other hand, singleness has fewer of these hindrances, but that doesn't somehow guarantee greater spiritual virtue. So Paul's using, again, he's using this term which is translated in other places as anxiety and worry. Paul, in all of these contexts, is using it not in a negative way, but he's using it in a positive way. He's saying that if you're married, you should have this concern, right? And you should be concerned about the Lord. Whether you're married or whether you're single, you need to be concerned about that, about your devotion to Christ. If you're in the body of Christ, you need to be concerned about the welfare of others. Timothy expressed that. Paul himself had that. So in, 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 in all of these various contexts, this term is, is, is sort of is translated in a way that we, we get, we, we understand that it's being used in a, in a, in a virtuous way, like in, in a positive way. So concern for the church, concern for the spiritual well-being of others, concern for the daily, the daily needs of life, concern for our marriages and families, those are all good things. In fact, we ought to be concerned if we're not concerned about those things. All right, you should be concerned if you're not concerned about that, Okay. So worry is not impassioned care or holy concern that causes you to attend to life in a responsible way. And we would add to that, worry is also not right planning that acknowledges God's sovereignty. Uh, There is a problem uh, when we plan for the future without trusting God, and James 4 speaks to this. James 4 and verse 13, James writes, he says, Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So James basically said, there, there is a problem. <laughs> there is a problem, but it's not the planning. The planning is not the problem. It's the planning without God that's the problem, right? Or, or you could say it's the presumptuous attitude that's the problem. Because the Bible encourages us to plan. So James 4 is not about don't make plans because you could go to Proverbs and you could easily, right, you could easily uh, uh, show the other side of that and the importance of, of being diligent, the importance of thinking about the future. I mean, Proverbs, the wise man is the one who thinks about the future, right? He's the one who's making preparations today for what might happen tomorrow, but that's, you, can, you can do that without sinning, Right? On the flip side, you can sin in doing that, right? If your plans and your preparations are not taking into account that God is sovereign. So that's what worry is not. Well, let's look at the the other side of that coin, what worry is. Okay, worry is an inordinate concern regarding the future and things that keeps a person from fulfilling current biblical responsibilities. That's a mouthful. And an ordinate counsel uh, concern regarding the future and things that keeps a person from fulfilling current biblical responsibilities. In other words, it's a concern that distracts and prevents a person from doing the most important thing in the moment. All right, so let's look, look at some of the examples, some examples of this. So turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Verse uh, 38. We'll start in 38. Now, as they were traveling along, he, Jesus, entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was, and then notice these concepts, how these, you see this in various uh, different contexts, how these, this term distraction pops up. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted with all of her preparations, And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. In verse 41, but the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are merimnao. You are worried and bothered. So just in case you're wondering, (laughs) is is this a positive or a negative, right? Is this a... Is this a commendation or is this a rebuke, right? It's a rebuke. Uh, we, we know that by the context, but also by the fact that there's this other term, bothered, which means, it literally means to drag around, right? Or, or you could say, she was in a tumult, right? She was bothered by this. She was troubled by this. She was disturbed by this, right? So Martha's, uh, uh, Martha's peace and joy has gone out the window about this particular issue. And so he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. What was the good part? What was the necessary thing in the moment? What was, what was the most important thing in that moment? And what was the most important thing was not the number of dishes that were served. That wasn't the most important thing. It was the thing that, that, that was exemplified by Mary, 
namely an attitude of worship and meditation, listening with an open mind and a submissive heart to what? The words of Christ. The words of Christ. So very practically speaking, worry drives us from God and His Word. Worry drives us from God and His Word, not usually to the Word. Not usually to the Word. Actually, it even chokes out the effectiveness of the Word in your life. Uh, If you want to turn over to Matthew 13, you may may remember the parable of the soils there in that that particular chapter. Jesus tells a parable and says, "...there was a sower that went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell in rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil." But when the sun had risen, it says, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they, they withered away. Others fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out, and others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Then notice the explanation, and this, is, this begins in verse 18. Jesus says this, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. So we might describe this as this is the sin-hardened heart. The sin-hardened heart. Because these are just just different kinds of hearts. He's just describing different kinds of heart. The the seed goes out. The the difference here is not the seed, right? The difference is the the condition of the heart of the people that that are hearing the word, right? Hearing the message. And so Jesus says this, there's, a, there's a person that is described as a, a person that has a sin-hardened heart, and, 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 the, and the, it's as if the word just sort of bounces off. Okay, Verse 20, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself but is only, uh, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word immediately he falls away. This is not the sin-hardened heart. This is the superficial heart. The superficial heart. This is the person that there's that sort of immediate response. Uh, you might even say an emotional response. In other words, there seems to be this, this dramatic change, this ex- exciting, wonderful transformation that takes place, but very, very short-lived, right? So it's just a, it's just a, ends up being a sort of a superficial profession of faith on the part of this person. And then comes next, you might call it the self-comforting heart. The self-comforting heart. Verse 22. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the merimnah, this is in the, this is in the, uh, actually in the, in the plural, so it's, it's the worries or, uh, of the world, or you might say the, the cares of this age or the cares of this life, and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Right? It's amazing. The word actually becomes unproductive. Why does it do that? Because this person is devoted to material things, because they are devoted to pleasure, uh, or, or because of their love of comfort. Right? And so the, the productivity... Uh, the effectiveness of this word, the fruitfulness of this word, 
uh, is, is no more because of that, because it chokes it out. The cares of this life, the, that love for pleasure and that love for comfort choke out the word. It's, it's actually the word for crowding around. It's a term used in Luke 8 to describe the multitude that was pressing in and against Jesus. And so, so, so Jesus is saying that the worries and the cares of the world will crowd out and suffocate the word in your life. So let's be clear, worry is sinful, right? So just like fear, one of those ten sort of things that you need to kind of work through, one of those is you need to, you need to know, see it for what it is, right? Worry is sinful. In fact, worry is, we could add to what we're saying already, worry is a sinful concern that is rooted in covetousness, worldliness, and unbelief. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus addressed worry. In fact, he, 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 there's three commands in that section in, in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 25, stop being worried. Verse 31, do not worry. Verse 34, so do not worry about tomorrow. What's interesting in that passage is what leads into that passage. Okay, so if you're there in Matthew 6... If people say, oh yeah, Matthew 6 speaks about anxiety, speaks about worry, I need, to, I need to go read that, okay? And so they jump right in in verse 25 with that command about the fact that we need to stop worrying, and they miss verse 24, okay? Because this is, verse 24 is like the setup for verse 25. Look at 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What's the connection? Verse 24 says, you can't do both. You can't do that. You can't do it. And if you try to, you'll end up doing what verse 25 prohibits. Namely, worry. Right? You'll end up divided in your mind and your heart trying to serve two masters, which is impossible. And, and, and one will win out. And usually, if you, again, if you don't deal with this, right, you don't nip this thing in the bud, then in that struggle, right, in that distraction and in that divided attention and devotion in your life, if you don't deal with that in a biblical way soon, what normally happens, because you can't equally do both, right? And so what usually happens is, the cares of this life usually went out, right? The food and the drink and the clothing and the shelter, right? Those things tend to crowd out our devotion to Christ. Are those things important? Is food important? It's okay to say yes. You, uh, hopefully you got a little bit this morning before you came to church, right? If not, there's some munchkins on the table near the nursery, all right? Food's important, okay? Drink's important. Clothing's important. Shelter's important, Okay? But should those things ever be the source of our ultimate satisfaction and security? No. Now, last week we looked at another passage, and I want, you, I want to go back there. This is Luke 12. Uh, last week we looked at the first 12 verses of Luke 12, so I want to just, just, we'll just pick it up in verse 13 of that chapter. Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? 
And then Jesus said to them, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed. Now you remember earlier what he said in the first few verses? What did he warn them about before? Beware of the what? Of the Pharisees. You remember that? Hypocrisy. So we talked about that. You've got to deal with that issue of hypocrisy. But in this case, he's telling his disciples to beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Verse 16, and then he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say, this is so key, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Okay, we're talking about comfort, right? Talking about comfort. But God said to him, verse 20, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Goes right into this. Verse 22, he said to his disciples, for this reason, so for this reason, okay, for what reason, right? This, this issue of covetousness, this issue of, of, of being rich toward God, right, and, and, not, and not storing up treasures on earth. He says, for this reason, I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have, and then notice how he ties this into his parable. They have no storeroom nor barn. <laughs> right? So you got the parable about the guy that has these things, and he could fall back. This guy could fall back on Proverbs and say, well, I'm just trying to prepare, right? Except that God tells us, the Lord tells us about the motivations of the man's heart, right? So it'd be hard for us to know, right? If we're looking at this guy from the outside, he could just look like an industrious guy. He could just look like a guy that is just being wise, according to Proverbs, right? He's just trying to, to get ahead, right, and to make preparations, except that the text reveals to us that he's relying in his preparations. That's his security, right? That's what he's trusting in. And so when Jesus says this, he's just tying back into that and saying, look, consider the ravens. They don't have a barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will, what you will drink, and do not keep worrying for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows, what, your father knows that you need these things. So what we have here is Christ addressing the issue of coveting and the sin of worry that accompanies it. He says in verse 22, do not worry. He reiterates the command in verse 29, do not keep worrying. Why? Because worry is worldliness. It's worldliness. And by worrying, the world seeks a host of things. They, 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 
They seek security and safety, happiness and fulfillment, moral freedom, shelter from any fallout, self-justification and personal goodness. The world frets over these things and works for satisfaction on their own. And sadly, Christians can sometimes do the same thing. And then Jesus reminds his disciples that worry is unbelief. It is unbelief. How is that? Because when we join the world in this same kind of sinful worry, we, in essence, deny many things about the character of God. When we worry, we deny God as our Father and the one who is, in, is intimate with every soul. Right? When we worry, we deny God as the sustainer of all things by the word of His power. We deny that God is omniscient and aware of every need before we have it. We deny that God is good and that every, everything granted by Him or withheld by Him is because He is good. We deny God as Lord and that He is completely able to do anything that He pleases. We deny that God is trustworthy. Or as we've mentioned in past weeks, when we are sinfully afraid or sinfully concerned in that moment, we do not believe that God is enough or that He has done enough for us. Which leads us to a place of discontent and a desire and a lust for something else other than who He is and what He has chosen to do in our lives. That's what's going on, folks. <laughs> right? So this, this respectable sin, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I get where I worry sometimes. Yeah, I get a little anxious. And then we just sort of like, that's not a big deal. Everybody worries, you know. And, and you start to think about, well, what, but what's really going on there? Well, what's really going on there is it's, it's unbelief in the character of God. It's unbelief in the promises of God. It's, it, it's, it's unbelief that leads us to a place where we're not, we're not content with what God is doing, right? So we in our minds begin to, to imagine what we think that we need in the moment, or what we think we deserve in the moment that God's not giving to us. And then we then start to pursue that, right? Because we don't just stay there, right? We don't just sit there and think, well, I'm discontent with what God is doing and who He is, and I really think that I should be in a different place and that there should be different people in my life and a different set of circumstances. And so, but I'm just going to keep it at that level, right? I'm just going to be discontent in my heart but not necessarily pursue the wrong things. That didn't happen that way, right? I mean, we quickly go from discontent to pursuing these things, right? Going after these things for security, going after these things for joy, going after these things for peace. And this is why we experience both anger on the one hand and anxiety on the other. We experience anger on the one hand because we're angry if God doesn't give us what we think that we need, right? So we get frustrated. So once we envision what we think we need and that God is not enough, then we get angry with Him or we get angry with others who stand in the way of what we think we need, right? So other people in my life are not cooperating with me and not helping me to worship my idols, right? And so we begin to view people as instruments to either help us to get what we want or what we think we need, or we see them as obstacles to overcome because they're in the way of the things that we think we need or want. So on the one hand, we get frustrated and angry, right? On the other side, we get fearful and anxious, and we worry. Why? Because we panic, because we don't think we're going to get what we think we need or want, right? So we, get, we, get, we worry about it, right? We're afraid that 
that something's not going to change about the people in our lives. We're afraid or we're, or we worry about the fact that the circumstances aren't going to change or they're not going to change quick enough. So we get anger going, we get anxiety, we get panic, and all these things going. And then here's the thing. If you experience anger and frustration and anxiety and fear long enough without seeing things change in your life in the way that you want them to change, you ultimately end up depressed. People don't usually get to depression without going through the door of anxiety or anger. Depression usually sets in because they're already angry and frustrated or they're already anxious and worrying, but the circumstances aren't changing. And so what sets in is hopelessness, right? They're anxious about something and things aren't changing as fast as they want them to change, and so eventually they lose heart and they become despairing. So people, when you... Talk to people that you feel like are struggling with depression. Just realize there's, it's dep- depression's at the back side of this, right? It's depression. You've got to backtrack to frustration and anger, anxiety and worry and fear. And then from there, guess where you've got to go? Discontent. Lust for more. They want more. And then from there, you go where? Unbelief, right? Is this a disorder? Well, not according to the DSM-5. Right? This is not a psychological disorder. This is a disorder of the heart. Right? This is the Romans 1 disorder because we're exchanging the glory of God for the glory of the creature. Right? That's what's really at the bottom of this. It's, it's unbelief. It's not taking God at his word. So worry is sin. It betrays our profession in Christ. As Bridges says it is unbecoming of a saint. And people worry for various reasons. We worry because we have the wrong concerns and priorities. Uh, It's a form of idolatry. When we worry, we have an inordinate focus on things, on goals, and on people, and the things that we worry about reveal our idols, right? They reveal those inordinate desires. We worry because we do not believe and trust trust God. Again, you go back to that passage where Jesus describes warriors as people of little faith. Worry is the fruit of remaining unbelief and doubt in a Christian's life. Think about this. The thing or the person that we turn to when we have a problem is the one we trust most to help. Sometimes rather than depend on God, we turn to or trust in the wrong things, quite often ourselves or our own insight, our own savvy, as we rest in the strength of our own calculations rather than the covenant love and faithfulness of Christ. And we worry because we handle our legitimate concerns the wrong way. So sometimes, again, we should be concerned about our families. We should be concerned about others. But what happens is we go from godly concern to sinful anxiety and don't even know it. (laughs) Right? It's like there's a line in there somewhere, and it is a heart issue, but we don't always discern when we've stepped over that line. Because... You should be concerned. I'm not trying to make moms feel guilty. You should be concerned about your kids. Okay, right? Should you be concerned about your kids? Yes, it's okay to be concerned about your kids. Is it okay to fret about your kids? No. Is it okay to be concerned? Is it okay to, to to care for your children? Yes. Is it okay to be sinfully anxious? No. What's the difference? These issues right here. You know, where is your heart? Are you trusting in the Lord? Maybe you have a right concern, but you're handling it the wrong way. If the concerns we have are priorities to God, then God has already instructed us how to go about dealing with those concerns. 
There is always a biblical way to handle any concern that is a concern to God. The problem is often that we are so unfamiliar with the Scriptures that we do not know what God has said, and therefore we lean on our own understanding and end up worrying and fretting about our concerns. So folks, this is the problem, all right? This is it. This is the issue, okay? We'll come back to solutions, but I'm saying this is the problem. A divided heart, a distracted mind. You go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, trying to serve two masters. That's when we get into trouble. Trying to serve two masters, and it will wear you out, right? How many, I mean, it just... I'm a, I'll raise my hand. I struggle with anxiety. Any of y'all just struggle generally with kind of worry and anxiety? Right? I'm there. Does it exhaust you? It, it, people that are anxious in their heart are absolutely worn out. They're worn out. Why are they worn out? Because God has only given them um, the, the, the energy and the grace today to deal with today's problems. And when you're divided in your heart and mind, you're thinking about more than today's problems. You're thinking about tomorrow's problems. Which is why Jesus said what? Don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough concerns of its own. Right? So what we end up doing is what? Instead of focusing on present responsibilities, we think about future uncertainties. Instead of focusing on what we can control, namely our thoughts and words and actions and our own response to the people and outcome of circumstances in our life, we end up focusing on the things that we can't control. Instead of focusing on personal faithfulness, we try to produce results. Instead of focusing on treasures in heaven, we we want to store up earthly possessions and treasures. Instead of focusing on God's kingdom, which Jesus clearly said is an antidote for this, right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and these things will be added to you. Instead of doing that, we're focusing on building our personal kingdoms. Rather than pursuing loving Christ, we pursue our idols, and rather than serving others, we treat others as a tool or as a blank. As an obstacle. I don't know why that fell off there. We use them as a tool to get what we want, or we see them as an obstacle, as something that's standing in the way of what we idolatrously want. So we'll do this next time. We'll stop here for today. We need to come back to this. Critical components in the process of change when it comes to anxiety. So what we'll do is we'll, next Sunday, we'll take that initial list of 10 things. Right? We'll go back to this. Right? We'll take this right here. And we'll say, we got to do this still. We still need to do this. But there's about six or seven or eight additional things based on those texts that we just went to. And maybe a couple of more. There's one in Philippians 4 and there's one in 1 Peter 5. And we'll add to this list. And I'm just telling you folks, if you can, because you're going to worry this week. Most of you are going to struggle with this this week. In fact, some of you have even been in this class. I've heard more. this has happened at least twice that I know of have been in this class hearing us talk about these things and been anxious while the class is going on. Thinking about these things. I'm telling you, this is, this is a troublesome thing for most Christians. It's, it's, a, it's a battle. It is a battle. It is a battle. We've got to be ready for it, right? But this is a life-changing thing. I'm just telling you. This is, a, this is a very common battle in the Christian life. And if you can understand what's really going on in your thoughts and in your mind and in your heart on on a spiritual level, you can have victory over this. You can walk in the Spirit. And when you walk in the Spirit, you do not have to and you will not fulfill the desire of the flesh. Right? So we'll come back. We'll add to that list of ten things. So I encourage you to be here next week. We'll uh, walk through those together.
Okay, and then I'm also going to bring some resources next week. Some of you have asked, like, well, do you have any good, like, if we go beyond this, we want to read some more. I got about 10 of those. So I'm going to bring as many as I can, pull together, and I'll mention a few of those at the very end and kind of point you in the right direction if you're interested in studying some of these things further. All right, folks, thank you for your time.